What do we mean when we say scripture is inerrant? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you focus on the gospel in every area of your life and ministry. I'm Brian Dembozik, the managing editor of The Gospel Project, and with me is Aaron Armstrong, our brand manager. So, Aaron, today we're talking about inerrancy. Why don't you start by reading uh, the 99 Essential Doctrine on inerrancy that we have? So, yeah. So what we mean when we talk about scripture as being inerrant is this. Inerrancy refers to the belief that the, that the scripture is completely truthful without any mixture of error in all its teaching, no matter what subject it addresses. That point is key. Yes. But let's continue. Believing the scriptures to be inerrant does not preclude the biblical author's inclusion of observations from a human perspective, such as the use of round numbers, unusual grammatical constructions, or varying perspectives on a particular event. It does mean, however, that the scripture is an infallible guide to salvation and it, that it is truthful in all that it affirms. That's a big, really big way yeah. of saying something that's actually really simple. It's simple, but it's more complex. Exactly. Because, I mean, how would you define this simply? The The simple way to, to define inerrancy is really to say what it literally means, which yeah. is that it is without error. Script, the Bible is what, that's what inerrant means. Exactly. And it's full stop on that. It, it has no errors. But we, what we've had to do in history, because this has been such a critical, and I have to tell you, this is one of my more favorite of the, the essential doctrines. I just love this doctrine. Absolutely. But we have fought over this in the past mm-hmm. um, it, within the Southern Baptist Convention back in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s. This was the battle uh, because there were a group that did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And we still see that today, of course, in different denominations and so forth. But this is so critical. And that's why you paused in the middle of that, that definition. And all these Essential doctrines are crafted carefully, of course. Of course. Doesn't mean they are inerrant because they're written by us. Correct. Um, but these, us being the Gospel Project team, not just you and me. Um, but these, we've had to craft very carefully because there are nuances. This one, as you said, this is so simple. The, the Gospel, I mean, the Bible has no errors. But there's a little bit more nuance to that. Exactly. And that's, and that's that, why we have to start parsing it more carefully. Right. Because there is a... In a there's a way in which you can read the scriptures as very, very flat, and you can take that without error to um, strip literary style out exactly. and all of these kinds of things. So and let me just give an, a practical example in case somebody's not following. When the Bible mentions the sun rose, you can't call that an error. And you'd say, well, you know, well, we know the sun doesn't rise and so forth. Right. So does that mean the Bible made it? No, it's no. it's a figure of speech. It's we Even the newspaper, well, do, do they still print newspapers? Back when they used to yes, print newspapers, do. you could open it up and they would have in the newspaper, sunrise, sunset. It's just, yeah. it's an accepted figure of speech. Absolutely. The, the so techni- the Bible can have them. Right. The technical term for those is phenomenological language, which is... Uh, a That's great, a phenomenal term, isn't it? Though, so, but it's it's referring to it's referring to language that describes a phenomenon from our perspective, and so the Bible includes those things. Um, when the Bible talks about God's outstretched arm and His mighty hand, Wait a minute, and, God doesn't and have all a body. Of these things, it's God is a spirit. The only member of the Trinity with a physical body is Jesus. <laughs> And so a, isn't that an error then to say that God has an arm? Not at all. It's a, it's what's called a metaphor. 
before. (laughs) (laughs) And there are other places that genuine brothers and sisters in Christ can disagree with on this point, and even to the degree of what is metaphor and what isn't in Scripture. So in this subpoint, not in the big doctrine. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Not Not in the big doctrine of inerrancy. This is a critical doctrine, how we're understanding it fleshed out. That's kind of what you have in mind. That's exactly what I have in mind. So all genuine believers affirm that the Bible is completely true. How we understand those things may differ in certain spots. When it comes to a critical doctrine of the faith, when it comes to an essential truth of the faith, those are some of the make or break so, things. Like, so for example, Jesus' resurrection is one of those things that's, that's, it's a deal breaker. Yeah. Bodily resurrection. Right. If you don't believe that he physically rose from the dead, then the, you're not in a meaningful way a Christian. Yeah. We have issues. Yeah. So uh, let, let me, again, trying to bring clarity for somebody listening that may be rubbing shoulders with this for the first time. An example of where we could still hold to inerrancy, but maybe disagree on what it looks like. Would you say the the use of day in Genesis 1 in the creation account? Yes. Where some would say, no, that's a literal day, 24 hours period. Others would say, no, that word can have the connotation of a period of time. Right. So maybe it wasn't a literal 24 hours. So that's where we, we both hold to God created literally. He, he spoke everything to existence. We, we uphold the inerrancy of scripture, but how we understand that literalness fleshing out in that use of day. Correct. Would that be kind of what you're saying? Absolutely. We have room for disagreement. Absolutely. It's something that uh, now... For full disclosure, let's just put. I'm just putting my cards on the table. I lean We're Baptist, toward. We don't play cards. Oh, that's right. Sorry. We also don't dance, right? No. Does no. cards lead to dancing? I, it may sometimes. Okay. There we go. That's good to know. Um, I lean. You're, I, you're putting all your prayer notes on the table. There we go. There we go. I'm putting my many Bibles on the table. <laughs> my many CSB <laughs> Bibles. We, it's a no, we're not just other Baptists. We work at Lifeway. Absolutely. Our CSBs on the t- table. That's right. So putting that on the table, I lean toward an interpretation that says literal day. I, I do as well. I but. But I'm gracious for those who do not. Absolutely. I respect the argument that it's not a literal. And I am willing to be convinced by Scripture that it's not the case. Yeah. And I just just need to put that on the table that that is is where I lean because it seems to align best with what Scripture says as a whole. Yeah. Am I gonna am I gonna get in a fight with anyone over it? Of course not. No. Because there's many other things that I can fight over. Yeah, Twitter gives us many opportunities to fight about things, doesn't it? Absolutely. God right, bless so, Twitter. So let me let me circle back to something you said and let's yes. look at a couple of passages in scripture where we see yes, this. Please. Be- as you're reading the definition or the the essential uh, doctrine rather, um, you paused there um, and, and talked about the 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 importance of how inerrancy deals with all that the Bible teaches, because this was, and you pause there in, intentionally because this is important. Mm-hmm. There are some who would try to parse and say, well, the Bible is inerrant when it comes to doctrine, but not necessarily issues of, say, science. Sure. And that's why they would say, no, if if the Bible was an error for saying the sun rose, well, it's not a book of science. Sure. And so it can have an error there, but it's, it's truthful in doctrine. And we would reject that misunderstanding. We would say, no, no, no. God is true, period. Mm-hmm. He is all-knowing, period. He does not make mistakes in science. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he is, if he's behind the writing of Scripture, 
if if it's inspired as as we've talked about, mm-hmm. then no, it would not make mistakes in science or math or whatever. Sure, and that's that's why you pause there, right? Yeah, yeah, and and it's one of those things that that I think it's important that there there are issues that the Bible doesn't directly speak to in in practice. Yes, it is not a science book. Right, that's it's correct. not a, it's not a science book. But it doesn't it's get not a math wrong. book. Um, it gives us guy under undergirding principles that that direct how we think about those things. To your point, but it's not going to give us the outline for this is what this scientific equation is, or this it, is how um, this is the the rota- the speed of the rotation of the Earth, or any of these kinds of things, because it wasn't meant for that. And then God formed the H two O's in the. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not going to give us – it's not going into that kind of granular yeah. detail. Because that's not the point. The point no. of the Bible is to give us what we need to understand about God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. Exactly. Exactly. And so what it – so what it is abso- – so it's absolutely clear on everything that it teaches. It is both <laughs> in terms of direct – in, in either directly or in principle. And that is something that we have to be very careful to affirm while also giving a lot of grace to yes. recognize that the perception of a battle between science and faith is it's a straw man. It's not true. Yeah. Because it's, and it's never been true because most of the greatest scientific innovations in the last 600 years have all come from Christians. It, it has been an attempt in the past. I, I don't hear this as much today. Uh, I'm still, it's still out there, but I just don't rub shoulders with it myself. But I think it was more of an attempt in the past to try to marry faith and, and science where they seem to be in opposition. And so I think it was a, a weak attempt, although perhaps a noble one, uh, to try to say, no, 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 these are, you know, we don't have to choose one or the other. We can choose both. Right. But the problem is they they compromised theology. They, they compromised scripture. Right. Um, and, and that's where the mistake was made. Yeah. So let's look at a, a few passages. Let's, let's, let me just mention two without looking at them. And then sure. let's look at two from Matthew 22. And, yeah. And the two that I want to look at, they're both in Matthew 22. And, and Aaron, I'll let you drive the first one. I'm thinking of, of uh, verses 32 through 33 that you can kind of walk us through. Yep. And I'll walk us through when that happens right after that 41 through 46. Yeah. And then we'll move on with our podcast. So uh, two verses just to kind of reference that are important to support this idea of inerrancy. One is Matthew 5.18, where Jesus is is discussing the value of Scripture, and he mentions that not even the smallest letter or the smallest stroke will pass away from Scripture. And so he places this high value on not only the Scriptures as a whole, not just ideas. Some people would say just the ideas are inspired. No, he, the very words are inspired and inerrant. They all matter. They all are uh, under God's providence, mm-hmm. um, and He uses. You may have heard this the uh, the jot and the tittle uh, yep. way. It's uh, some translations, but it's basically the smallest letter, which is the the Hebrew letter Yod, which basically looks like an apostrophe, mm-hmm. and the smallest stroke, which basically looks like the little squiggly on a Q, the separated capital Q from a, a capital O. Yeah, those are basically how we can think of those. The, the most minute. Of, of marks on the page matter. Right. And so from this, we see that Jesus placed a very high value 
on not just the words of Scripture, the letters of Scripture um, and, and the importance of them. And then Titus 1, 2 and Hebrews 6, 8 both reference how God cannot lie. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's in his character. He is true. He right. cannot violate his character. So could God record, again, this hinges with inspiration. We've talked before, many of these essential doctrines fuse together. You can't parse them. If if Scripture is indeed inspired, which we'd say, of course it is, mm-hmm. then and God is not a liar; He cannot make mistakes. Therefore, what we have cannot have lies or mistakes in it. Um, so, a logical uh, tertology is that what it's called? I believe so. Uh, if A is true and B is true, then C must be true. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, uh, listeners, you can look that up on your own if you choose. <laughs> uh, you can email me if I'm wrong on that. Email Aaron Armstrong at lifeway.com. Oh, thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. You can edit that out later. Nah, it's fine. <laughs> so, uh, Aaron, why don't you look at Matthew 22 and kind of walk us through how sure. that impacts with this topic as well? Sure. Well, with uh, Matthew 22, there is a um, particular these verses of 32 and 33. Um, let's just give a little bit of context to them. Um, Jesus is having one of his many encounters with um, with the religious leaders in uh, in his day. Uh, This time, it's not the Pharisees, it's the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were an interesting group because they were more the theological liberals of their time in that um, they functionally denied the the inerrancy of Scripture. And the resurrection from the dead. And that's the key thing. Which is why they were sad. Yes. You see. Yes. Oh... Thank you for your dad joke. You gotta, no, you've never heard that one. Uh, I'd no. say that's a preacher joke. That's yeah. That's remember, how, remember, not yeah, a Christian until twenty five. Yeah, yeah. That's that's an old school pastorism that yeah. uh, when you're when you're trying to explain the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you were saying they were more liberal. Mm-hmm. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead, which is why they were sad. You see, that's how right. you can remember. Yeah, there you go. All right. So so in this encounter, the Sadducees are are coming up to Jesus and they're trying to trick him, and they're they're playing a game of gotcha. And all the religious leaders love to play this game with Jesus, and Jesus was having none of it. So they came up with this this big question. Of, you know, if a man dies and has no children, his um, his brothers to uh, to marry his wife and raise up offspring. Well, what if there's seven brothers and none of them have children, and they go through they go through all the way through, and all, the woman dies last in the resurrection. Which one Which one is she married to? Such a far fetched question. I mean, it's it's a, it's, it's a so, it's a valuable question. It's so silly though, but. I mean, it's so far fetched the way they set up. It's like my kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But dad, but dad, what if, what if, what if this? Well, and so Jesus answers them with what is probably my favorite answer in yeah. the entire Bible. He just says, "You're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God." <laughs> He's like, "You're just wrong." Is your starting point? You don't know what you're talking about, and so he says. For in the resurrection, they will not, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Note: they are not angels in heaven. Yes. They are like angels in heaven in that they are not married or given in marriage. Now he says concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And it ends by saying, when the crowd, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. That's what we call a mic drop. Absolutely. Like you can just, 
you can just picture that that uh, that great Obama gif of uh, him just dropping the mic, <laughs> and he's just like, "Peace out." <laughs> but you see, uh, the, the Sadducees with their their mouths hanging open, trying to find words to say, right. and they non, have none no response. idea what to do with that, and the crowd's just going, "Oh!" It's like, did that just happen? What a yeah, great that moment. just happened, guys. So, what's amazing about this, um, aside from just the like flat out like you're wrong from Jesus is is to notice the the verb tense that that Jesus mm-hmm. uses um, when it, he's it responding to them when he says and he hinges his entire argument on this one statement that that he's saying have you not heard has has have you not heard how God has spoken to you and he says God told you this and quotes the scriptures and says I am the God of Jacob I am the God of Abraham I am the God of Isaac um, present tense yes. Not past tense, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am that God. Which infers what about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That they are going, that they are alive. Enjoying the presence of God. So it, it affirms resurrection. So Jesus crafts an entire argument around grammar. Mm hmm. Again, getting back to our topic as we talk about inerrancy, that even the grammar has that weightiness to be saying, no, this is true because these words matter. These words are true. Yeah. 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 So his whole argument on the resurrection hinges on that. Yeah. And of course, a little bit deeper uh, on this, this is of course coming from Exodus three, where, where Moses asks, who should I say you are to the people? Yeah. And this, this I am carries with it the the concept of Yahweh um, that we see Jesus uh, will use quite a bit. John has seven instances of the I am statements where Mm -hmm. Jesus is affirming his deity through this. So this is, that's a really important, it's, it's even much deeper. It's it's so huge. Um, And, and that's, that's one of those side note, side note, but kind of related things. When we think about um, the arguments that are made again, that are made about elements of the Christian faith um, and and some of our essential beliefs. Like, so for example, the deity of Jesus, you brought this up. He is affirming his deity here yes. and he does it all the time. What he does, how he does it is he uses those statements like the I am statements. Yeah. Um, does he, does he often come outright and say, Hey, by the way, I'm the God who made everything. Not outright most of the time, but he still does because those who, we're ready to hear that would have recognized it. Absolutely. So looking down a little bit later in verses 41 and through and through 46 of, of this chapter, and notice that that three of our examples that we've just kind of riffed off come from Matthew. And it's not accidental. Matthew, of course, was writing to the Jewish audience. Yeah. And his part of his intention was to show them the truthfulness of the Old Testament. Right. So Matthew, this may have been one of his favorite doctrines as well, because no, 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 the, the Old Testament's inerrant. Yeah, it's true. Let me show you how it's true because Jesus is fulfilling it. Right. So that's why a lot of of, of quotes from the Old Testament that, that Matthew will use, that he did use. So 41 through 46 is very similar. So so tracking down there, he says, well, the Pharisees were together. Now it's the Pharisees' turn. They take a crack at him. Yes. Um, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. And so he initiates with them. Uh, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? So he's trying to um, get to their attention who did what did the Old Testament mm-hmm. say about who the Messiah would come from? What what his line was? Mm-hmm. And they replied, Well, David's, of course. Yeah. And then Jesus springs the trap. 
he asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, so he's not wrong, mm-hmm. he's speaking the words of God, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord. So David called the Messiah Lord. Yep. And he quotes uh, in verse 44, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then here's the trap. If David calls him Lord, the Messiah, his descendant Lord, how then can be he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. Similar moment. Mm-hmm. And here we here's the the argument in case in case it's not apparent. The the one who calls another Lord is showing deference. Yes. It, it's it's a sign of respect. That goes upward. So in that culture, especially, and we we still today we see this. Yeah. Um, I don't call my kid, my boys, sir. They call me sir, for example. Respect goes up. And so if David is the ancestor, the Messiah coming from him, the descendant, the the Messiah should have called David Lord if it were normal. Mm -hmm. But rather, David refers to his descendant, the Messiah Lord, contrary to conventions. And Jesus' point is because that Messiah would be unique. He would not be a normal descendant. He would be divine, which is why David called him rightly Lord. Yes. So again, what we see here is a beautiful argument, a really important argument, but don't miss it for our discussion again, that Jesus is hinging this important doctrinal argument. This, this, He's identifying himself as, as the son of God here, the Messiah, and he's doing so on grammar, the very words of the Old Testament. Yep. I know we may not like this, but grammar matters. Absolutely. It matters. All right. So let me ask you a question, Brian. Go ahead. <laughs> you didn't you you didn't you didn't bite. No, I didn't. No, I appreciate that. All right. So let me ask you a question. Um so we've talked about the big ideas of this doctrine. We've talked about how it matters and how it's not just it's not just a theoretical thing. It's yeah. not a it's it's not it has it has teeth to it. Yes. What are some of the cautions that that we should have as we seek to understand this yeah. doctrine? Well, let, let me just kind of offer three. Sure. Um, and we've hit on a couple of these. So I'm going to move through the first couple quickly. The first one is, is again, we can't miss that the, that the Bible faith records sin. Um, don't confuse inerrancy and the truthfulness of Scripture to mean that God supports everything recorded. Correct. So the, the Scriptures faith record rebellion against him. It, it faithfully records the fall. It does not say that God's advocating. Now, sometimes this is very clear, of course, but there are times it can be a little bit confusing. Right. So an example of that is when the Bible talks about polygamy. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so David, for example, was a, was a fairly prolific polygamist. His son, yeah, nothing on a son. <laughs> that's the thing. His son said, "Hold my grape juice," and yeah. uh, went and, uh, and went whole hog on that. But um, you know, Abraham was a polygamist yeah. as well, and Jacob was a polygamist, and on and on. Many, 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 many um, men and women, men in the in the faith, were seen who are lauded as heroes of the heroes of the scriptures and heroes of the faith were did something that we would see as sinful yeah so is god saying hey you shouldn't is this this is okay is he condoning that behavior and people have tried to make make the argument i mean the mormons are a great example of that in their historic views um that 
that polygamy is okay because it's in the Bible. Um, and that's yeah. just not the case. Yeah. Just because it's in the Bible does not mean God supports it. Again, the Bible records faithfully what happened. Right. Uh, another thing is, is again, we mentioned figures of speech and approximations. Um, so, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. Does that mm-hmm. mean there were literally 5,000? First of all, it was just men. It was 5,000 men plus. No, there could have been 4,900 something. There could have been 5,100. It's right. an approximation. It does not mean that Jesus literally counted. All right. Let's let's count off, and, and there were literally five thousand men. It's an approximation. We accept these things. We understand. Now, if if there were ten people there, then that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so approximations are allowed. And here's another thing we didn't hit on this, but let me just clarify this. Yeah. Um, it also uh, inerrancy allows for different perspectives of the same event. This is important when we're reading the Gospels. Sometimes it's hard for us to reconcile the Gospel accounts because they're different perspectives, but they don't contradict. The The message that was written above the cross is a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. If you look at each of the Gospel writers, they, ref, they, they say that sign said something different. Mm-hmm. And the temptation is to say, well, that's an error. They're saying that, well, no, what happens is they're each giving a snippet of it. If you piece them together, you have the full sign that was above the cross. Right. They just chose to give a snippet. And here's the thing. Um, I, I've used this reference before in, in teaching um, in, a, in a church context, and I'll ask the group of 30 or so people, you know, if you went home and, and your spouse said, well, who was there tonight? And you listed off five or six people. Well, unless you say only, is that an error? No, you're just giving a perspective because maybe those are the five or six people your spouse would know. And or that you noticed. Or that you noticed. Yeah. Somebody else going home may have listed five or six different people. As long mm-hmm. as you don't say only, it's not an error. Now, right. if you say only those five, then it's a problem. Yeah. So we have to keep that. I mean, that makes sense to us. Keep that in mind as we're looking at the scriptures. Um, you know, it, when you're seeing those, the gospels specifically, when you're seeing those different accounts, they are different perspectives, different eyewitnesses. Um, different views, and and each gospel writer wrote for a different purpose and a different audience. So something is going to stand out that matters more in his argument. Yeah, and that's why he'll bring it to bear and not something else. Yeah. The third one, and uh, just word of, of caution here, um, is we have to be fair here and acknowledge that inerrancy refers to the original writings. Correct. And it starts getting a little bit of, of detail, but it's important. Right. In the same way that inspiration is related to the original exactly. manuscripts. What we have is if you have um, a, a few places in your Bible, the ending of Mark is the most most common one, the easiest to find. Turn to the end of Mark, and you may see either that whole ending in brackets, or you may see a footnote. Yep. Um, the reason is because we don't know if that's genuine or not because of the way that 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 the Bible was recorded. We don't have the original writings. It's all manuscripts and so forth. You piece all the manuscript evidence together. Mm-hmm. Older manuscripts matter, the diversity and so forth. There's this whole um, science that goes behind that. Yeah. Well, there are some passages like that that they just couldn't decide. They don't know was this authentic or not. Could it have been a copying mistake or could somebody have added it wrongly? That's the most notable. Um, there are a couple other passages that um, the woman caught in adultery. I was just thinking about That's that another one. one that we're yeah. not quite sure on. So some Bibles um, and some specific verses, there's one mm-hmm. in, in, um, uh, uh, oh, in, in Acts, um, the Ethiopian, and um, Saul stuck in my head. It's not Saul. Who? Stephen. Yeah. 
Uh, Philip. Philip, thank you. Yeah, yeah Stephen's on radio. Philip, that guy. Um, there's one time where the eunuch says, hey, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And there's a verse there that we don't know if it's authentic or not. So some translations, just leave it out together, maybe have a footnote. Yeah. Others are put in brackets. All this to say this. Because of the way the Bible was was handed down, there are some problem passages, we will we'll call them, that we don't know if they're authentic or not. Right. Or there are some copious mistakes in terms of like numbers. There yeah. in, in Kings and Samuel, there's some of these. How many horse stalls did Solomon have? I think it was 10,000 or 1,000, I think is the question. I'm, I'm rough on this, rusty right. on this. And in Hebrew, from my understanding, it's it's a very understandable distinction. Right. Uh, the the number of the beast is another one, yeah. though, too. So there um, are some of these that we would have to say it was either 10,000 stalls or 1,000 or whatever the number were. Sure. It can't be both. That's a copyist error. Somebody made a mistake. Somebody either added a zero, the Hebrew way of adding, or somebody forgot one. Here's the thing. We got to be, uh, we have to be honest and acknowledge these. Yes. But we don't stress over these. None of these issues involve key doctrines. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them should cause us to question our faith. None of those should cause us to question the Bible as a whole. There's just a few, a uh, handful. Yeah. Yeah. of problem passages. And we'll talk about this more as we get to um, another doctrine of the of the faith, uh, the preservation of Scripture yes. as well, because there are some other elements of that that come into play yeah. as well. But, but, we, but we have to be fair about this, because if you are in a conversation absolutely. with somebody and they were to throw out, well, you say the Bible doesn't have mistakes. Well, 10,000 or 1,000, which is it? Right. I think we have to be right. fair and say, well, yeah. Right. And there and there is that common... Um, the fear argument that is thrown out there is that the Bible is riddled with errors and, yeah. it, and it all comes down to those copious mistakes. Yeah. Um, there and again, is, there are only a handful of them. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there is a well-known popular um, anti-apologist, if you will, <laughs> um, for the, the inerrancy of scripture, uh, Bart Ehrman. He he will throw out these things all the time, um, and most of the time his arguments are completely incoherent anyway. Yeah. But um, but he'll throw this out, and then he'll go on to acknowledge at the same time that most of the errors don't mean anything. <laughs> so um, so so thinking about these from the from the end standpoint, what difference should the, this doctrine, why, how should it change our lives? Well, I think one of them is that, that again, in, in, in light of what we were just talking about, um, inerrancy should give us confidence. Mm-hmm. Even understanding a handful of, of copyist mistakes or errors or problem passages, whatever you want to call them, man, overall, the, the inerrancy of Scripture gives us great confidence in not only the Scriptures, but also, of course, the God of the Scriptures. That we have a God who's reliable. We can know Him because we have the Word of God. We have His Word, uh, the Gospel that is is that is contained within it. We we can have confidence in it. So inerrancy to me gives me incredible confidence as a follower of Christ, um, and and reminds me as an affirmation that that what I believe is true because the Bible is true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other side of it, too, is is that um, in terms of a difference, it it creates an expectation of us. So to acknowledge the inerrancy of Scripture, what that does is that requires us to work and to think deeply as we study the Scriptures to to um, to wrestle with some of those things and think, OK, what what? literary genre is this? Am I when I'm reading poetry, am I reading this as poetry or am I trying to read it as history, like or as flat history? Um, because 
the the Psalms often record historical events as well. Um, when we are looking at metaphors, are we looking at them properly? And 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 all of these kinds of things to interpret the book in in the way that it's meant, um, which in a lot of ways, interestingly, is interpreting it the way we would interpret any other piece of literature that we read. Um, because we in, we inherently understand how to do that when we're reading a book of fiction, or um, if you are dubiously fortunate enough to be reading a lot of business or leadership books <laughs> or things things of these nature, that you you know what people are trying to say, and so really what it means is that we give. Scripture, the credit it's doing, give its authors and its ultimate author that same credit. This is this is the exciting thing about studying God's word. It, it's weighty. It means something. Um, you know, you mentioned reading fiction and, and poetry, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm, but man, when you when you open up God's word, because of its inerrant, because it's inspired by God and, and so forth, yeah, there's there's it, it requires work of us, but it's work worth doing. It's it, there's a weightiness to it. There's a value in it. So that's a good conversation, Aaron. I, I enjoyed this. I, I hope you did. I hope yeah. our, our listeners did. And, and uh, thanks for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a sincere, notice that emphasis, a sincere five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.